Let's uh, go to Ephesians uh, chapter 4. We're back in our study of practical theology. And uh, Ephesians chapter 4, we're just kind of moving along this section of Scripture that deals with, uh, remember what verses in Ephesians here, um, remember what, what these verses are saying, 1 through 16, is all about uh, unity, Right? In the church. And that's a tremendous concept in and of itself, right? Because for years, I have been, I have been debating and I've had to debate, uh, Christian rogues, nomads that just want to kind of roam around the evangelical world, but they don't want to commit to any one church. They just kind of hop from church to church and they don't really want to, you know, settle down anywhere or get accountable or, you know, those kinds of things. And uh, I've written a lot on this issue, and I've preached a lot on that issue, but uh, it's just a reminder that everything that the Apostle Paul, all the apostles that they wrote, they wrote on the assumption that these things are going to be lived out in the context of the local church and not outside of that, right? Um, have you ever ran into people that, you know, you kind of meet them on the street or something or witnessing or something, and they say, hey, we're two or three are gathered, right? I mean, this is the church right here on the sidewalk. No, seriously, right? I've met so many people like that. Um, you know, like I've, you know, I've had situations where I'm open air preaching and some stranger, I don't even know the person from Adam and they want to, hey, can I get up and preach? I'm like, okay, well, I, who are you? First of all, one, you know, I mean, I'm sure you're a brother, but I mean, who, who are you? You know, oh, so-and-so, what church do you go to? Oh, well, you know, I go to many churches. Yeah, but who's your pastor? Well, yeah, I visit a lot of pastors. <laughs> yeah, but are you a member somewhere? Do you belong to a congregation? Are you accountable? You know what I mean. So just the whole concept of that sort of individualistic streak that runs in our culture today and spills over into the church at times with people. Um, the Apostle Paul, he just teaches the complete opposite. His whole worldview is completely opposite to that. It's very, very church-focused, so... Um, all right, so let's read now. I guess we can read this section again. Ephesians chapter 12, verse, uh, chapter four, four, verses 12 to 16. Kind of a big chunk, and man, there's a mouthful here. There's so much here. You guys have heard me teach on this before, but we're just going to go slow through this. Uh, beginning of verse 12, it says, For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Uh, one of the reasons why I love the NASB is because you notice how... You notice how um, technical this passage is this whole section right you notice how precise it is it's just it's just very almost very like um rigid you know what i mean i mean paul is being extremely 
um, precise and he's qualifying things. You know what I mean? Like, for example, uh, when he says, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head. And then he adds even Christ. I mean, he's being very precise about the way that he's talking here. So I uh, want to point out five things from this passage that we will not get to today. We're just going to get to uh, really one or two of these. But we're talking about unity now. Uh, and I guess what we could say is unity through um, maturity. Maturity. Because if you remember earlier on, we looked at unity based on the giftings uh, that God has given his church. Unity that is based on the virtues. We saw that earlier on in the chapter. Uh, the unity that we have in the oneness of our faith. The fact that we all share these ultimate realities like one faith, one baptism, one God, Father uh, of all. All of these unifying themes. Now... What I'm saying is that unity and maturity are based on several things. So number one, it is the concept of equipping right, the saints. Uh, that, that would be number one. So unity, maturity, achieved through equipping the saints. Uh, and that is verse 11 and 12. Again, he says he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers for uh, the equipping of the saints for the work of service. So Let's just stop and, and think about that right there. Um, there's so much here, but I mean, the whole purpose why we should get equipped and why, even as the trellis in the vine says, that pastors should be trainers, we should be teaching and equipping the body of Christ is for service. I mean, that's the, that's the purpose clause in this passage, right? It is for the purpose of service. And that just brings up a general issue, and that is that Christianity consists of submission and servitude. It really does. Um, can you guys think of any examples where that is true? That Christianity consists of submission and servitude. So first, submission to who? Christ, God, to the Lord, right? It all comes from that, right? And then servitude to who? Yeah, to one another, to the Lord, obviously, we serve the Lord, right, primarily. Uh, we also submit to one another, right? I mean, the Bible says, uh, doesn't he say that in here? Ephesians chapter 5, right? Verse 21, yeah, 521. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Um, there was a family that left our church, and his wife said, I don't know if I want to be in this church because I, I feel like I have to fear all the time around here. And what she was referring to at the time was posting inappropriate things on Facebook. And and I said, what's wrong with fearing? Because in the Bible, we should have a holy fear. We should have a godly fear of how we conduct ourselves and what ramifications that's going to have on the body of Christ, right? I mean, we should be, you know, using the word fear in the sense of we should have trepidation, uh, not to stumble a brother, for example. We should be very cautious and in that sense fearful of never offending anyone, right, in the faith, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, right here we're being told, you know, to submit to one another in fear. You know what I mean? Um, I think it's Paul, Peter who says conduct your, your, your stay on earth in fear, you know. So we should have a holy fear about our lives. Any questions or comments on that? 
Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. That's why I said it's holy fear. It's not a, mal- a fear of some malicious thing going to happen to you, right? Like someone's going to get you, right? <laughs> right. But it is a fear of a of a fear of always wanting to be pleasing to God, never wanting to offend God or offend His people. You know, I think that's something that is lost today, by and large. Yes, sir. You could go too far with anything. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. I mean, but you're, you're, I, I would say you're speaking of something else. You know what I mean? I think that that fear of God certainly is, is more of like what's called an epiphanic fear, right? Where God, because of his power and his majesty, if he were to appear upon you, it would, I mean, you would be covered in fear. I mean, just look at the holy men and, you know, godly men and women of old. Let's say Isaiah, who encountered an epiphany of God, right? He was... He was covered in dust and ashes, right? He said, I'm, what do you say? I'm undone. I'm ruined. I mean, he was gripped with godly, holy fear. I mean, that's holy fear in its purest form. You know what I mean? That God is so holy. I mean, you are shaken to the very core. I mean, I think that's really what judgment is going to be like, right? I mean, we're going to stand before God in judgment, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 and 11. And only because of Christ, <laughs> right, where will we be able to overcome the fear of that. You know what I mean? Because he is our advocate, because he is our propitiation. Outside of that, yeah, I mean, not only would we, f- like Isaiah, would be, would be gripped with fear and be undone, we would ultimately be ruined. You know what I mean? So, yes, ma'am. Exactly. Right. Amen. Amen to that. Right. Amen to that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So submission uh, and service. I mean, that's that's really what Christianity is. And Jesus taught that very thing, you know, that we by committing to the body of Christ to serve the body of Christ, we're serving him, right? What do you say in Matthew 25, right? If you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. So Christ takes it very personal, just like with persecution. You persecute the body of Christ. Jesus takes that so personal, it, it, he says you're persecuting him, remember? And that's in um, Acts chapter 9, remember, with the apostle Paul. As Paul is going around killing Christians, you know, Jesus tells Paul, why are you persecuting me? So Christ takes whatever happens to the body of Christ, Christ takes that very serious. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I think it's verse 19, where Paul says, he who destroys the temple of God, there is talking about the church, God will destroy him. I mean, think about that. You know, God takes very serious what goes on in his church. Yes, sir. How does it 
Wow, think about that. Wow, think about that. Think about that. I mean, Christian celebrities, that's a big warning to Christian celebrities. You want to be first, be last. You know what I mean? Don't hide away in the green room. Okay, enough of that. (laughs) You know what I mean. You know what I mean? Like, Anyway, uh, so what I want to do is I want to take us to a, a section that's kind of a parallel. And I think above everything, it illustrates this, this understanding of service. Because, remember, unity and maturity is achieved by being equipped for what? For service. What does service look like? Well, Romans 12. Turn there. Let's do a little bit of exposition. Romans chapter 12. And uh, I think it will serve our purpose Romans chapter 12 is a fascinating chapter. I mean, it is like the penultimate passage on the concept of serving in the church, serving in the body of Christ. I mean, there really is nothing like this, you know. Uh, Romans chapter 12. Somebody want to read that for us? Um, Let's say uh, we can go all the way down to verse 13. So somebody that wants to read with some gusto. Uh, Keith? Mm. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so after a sound judgment, as God has allowed to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, Thirteen. Amen. Um, I, I want to point out a, a few different emphasis here that Paul gives us. Number one, notice the emphasis, verses 1 through 3, or actually 1 to 2, the emphasis on worship and the need for a biblical worldview. This is kind of a comprehensive statement. It's almost like verses 1 and 2 are sort of comprehensive, a summary of what he's going to delve into, right? And then from verses 1 to 2, then he starts kind of, sort of detailing all the particulars, right, that, that, that should come from this life of worship. You know, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what, what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Part of equipping the saints is equipping people with the word of God to the degree that they're able to discern the will of God, 
And that's really what it is. You're able to judge right and wrong and make spiritually informed decisions about your life, right? I mean, there's so many decisions that we face as Christians that maybe we don't have a chapter and verse. But if we have a comprehensive understanding of the faith of a Christian worldview, we'll be able to make a informed decision. You know what I mean? Um, you know, I just recently had this conversation with a brother that, you know, I told him that despite um, a certain area in his life that he was really struggling with, um, that, that I thought, you know, his view of, of a certain aspect of life was sub-biblical. And, you know, I, I made it very clear to him, look, I'm not, I'm not undermining your experience. I'm not saying you don't struggle. I'm not saying that it's not uh, a problem for you. Um, but at the end of the day, what we all need is we need to have a biblical worldview regarding this issue, whatever it is. You know, let's say it's being a husband, right? And you say, well, I struggle being a leader in my home. I don't think I can do it. You know, I'm, I'm apathetic. I'm lazy. You know, whatever it is. And, 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 and you don't understand. I have, I have serious struggles in that area of leading. It's hard for me to open the Bible and, 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 and read with my, my family or pray with my kids. It's very difficult to do that. Okay, that's, that's, that may be true, and you may actually struggle with that, and I'm not saying it's not a struggle or it's not difficult, but you have to bring yourself to the place where what the biblical worldview says is that this is good and right in the sight of God and that we should strive to try to conform our lives to that standard as hard as it is for you, right? Um, can you guys think of other areas where that may apply? I mean, the Christian worldview is kind of... A general category, but yes, sir. I'd say walking the narrow path in general. Uh huh. You know, you might be certain there's a wide road, there's a narrow road, there's a narrow road, there's a righteous. It's always, uh, as far as I'm concerned, more difficult. So, any specific thing though, dealing with that 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 narrow road, because that is such a huge category, right? I mean, that's almost like speaking of the Christian life in totality. But is there any area of the Christian life? That specifically we are, we might find challenging to walk that narrow road. Self-control, in what area? Food. Food. Absolutely. Yeah. Amen. Can I get an amen? <laughs> right. Yeah, definitely having self-control with food. I mean, that's a big thing. You know what I mean? I've met many, many saints of God, men and women, who struggle severely with food. You know, when I'm preaching at UNT. I talk about eating disorders for women because I know that's a huge deal, you know, and I, I confront women. They're never going to hear this. No one's ever going to tell them this. So I kind of like shock them, you know, and shock their system. You know what I mean? I say, look, some of you ladies, because of idolatry, because of body lust, because you're lusting to have a different woman's body, you are putting your body through all of these gross, you know, uh, uh, sort of uh, disorders and, and, and you're doing ungodly things and, you know, Christ has something better for you, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But that's exactly right. You know, just because we become Christians, I've often said, you know, we don't have amnesia. <laughs> we still remember how things were, right, when we were unconverted. And that's why Paul has to tell us, you know, no longer walking after the lusts of the flesh, the epithumia, the strong urges that we, that, that still war against our members. Landon, I think you had something, brother? Evangelism. Because you can just grow cold and hard, become really lazy. Mm -hmm. you, know, you can yes. become selfish and wanting for yourself before other people. 
Yeah. Amen. Amen. And, and that's a good one, right? Because that, that is one of those areas where, um, where we might vary in our degree of gifting. And I would say even maybe burdened, you know, and that's what I think would qualify somebody as an evangelist, right? We have to be careful there, right? We talked about this before that we do not say, well, everyone is called to be an evangelist to the same degree. And what happens if we're not careful with our definition, then we sort of empty the word evangelist of its meaning. You know what I'm saying? So that there's no, no longer a particular gift in the church. Uh, but then at the same time, we also have to understand that just because some people are particularly gifted or called or burdened to be an evangelist, that doesn't get everybody else off the hook, <laughs> right? So it's a fine balance here, you know? And what you're saying, Landon, absolutely right. Evangelizing for, I would say, probably the majority of Christians, it doesn't come naturally. You know I mean, we struggle with it. It's, it's, it's hard. It's hard work. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but for me, it's easy for me to preach to a hundred students at college. It's hard for me to have a one-on-one conversation with a stranger at the store. Right? And, 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 you know, some people, it's the opposite. They love the one-on-one situation, but they could never stand up on a box <laughs> at college and talk to a hundred college students. It just freaks them out, even the thought of that. Right? So we're different in that respect, but but we have to get to the worldview to, that says evangelism is good and right and biblical and godly and 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 you know all, and it pleases the Lord. Right. Bring God to the forefront of who's a servant who might you know, understand the need of a customer type thing. Yeah. It opens up those opportunities to, to cast blessings to many folks. Yeah, I mean, sometimes work is probably the most challenging, you know. It's like family. I don't know which is more challenging, work or family. Some Christians are like, I don't care. None, none of it's challenging to me. It's easy to me. <laughs> That's because you're probably called to be an evangelist. <laughs> you know what I mean? Marshall. Self-control. Any particular area of self-control that you're thinking about, or just just in general, everything? Everything. That's right. Mm-hmm. Of course. No self-control. And what did it get us? Chaos. Amen, brother. That's right. That's right. 
That's right. And the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. That's part of it, right? And so if we have a regenerate heart, if we're truly regenerate, to some degree, we must say that we will have self-control so that we no longer live in the broad road. As much as of a struggle as it is, as much as we might battle, but we can never battle so much that we give in to the, narrow, the, the broad road, right, in the way that leads to destruction, you know? Brian? Mm-hmm. I'm learning that. Amen, brother. And patience is a big one, you know. I mean, even for pastoral ministry, you know, that's why the, the Apostle Paul, I believe, you know, when he says, we proclaim him teaching every man and admonishing every man with all wisdom. You know, he adds that so that, that he brings in a shepherding element. You know what I mean? It's one thing to teach someone data, you know what I mean, and information. It's another thing to patiently see them through the discipleship process. That takes a different you know, character trait, which I think is a shepherding trait. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, yeah, amen. And I just think, like, in this, in these two verses, they're so comprehensive, but it's like Paul's laying out, you know, a view. And really, Luther, when he, you know, during the Reformation, he, he sort of, you know, brought this passage to bear on the Catholic Church to show that there was no such thing as a separation between the secular and the sacred. You know what I mean? That all of life was worship for Luther, you know? And that everything you did, there's, there was no, no such thing as a meager task as a Christian. No matter if you're making shoes or if you're distributing the elements, you know, for the Lord's Supper. I mean, everything you do, what does Paul tell us? First Corinthians chapter 10 verse 31. Whatever you do, do to the glory of God, right? So anything that you do should be to God's glory. Um, yeah. Keith, yes sir. We're going to get to verse 9. <laughs> yeah, well, I know we're supposed to get to verse 9. <laughs> let's get let's let's go then. Um uh verse 3 uh, just quickly notice Paul's emphasis on humility, right? As we serve one another. He says for through the grace given to me I say notice how he qualifies that too before he even exhorts others, he first is careful to point out <laughs> 
because of the grace given to me, <laughs> right? And on that basis, now I can tell everyone else among you, do not think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. That's a really great, that's a really great word there, sound judgment, uh, as God has allotted to each man a measure of faith. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we serve each other from a place of deep humility, understanding that our motivation is grace. Grace is what fuels us. Grace is the basis upon which we operate here, right? It's not because we earn something or we have the right to do something. You know, um, if we are particularly gifted in one area or another, it is simply on the basis of God's grace, and we can never, ever forget that. Understanding that God has allotted to each one a measure of faith, which is expressed in various ways, as he's going to show. Notice the responsibility that comes from that. Verse 4, for just as we have many members in one body, all members do not have the same function, right? So we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So it just boils down to the individual emphasis. Because we are many members, we all have different functions. And we are, uh, the implication there is that we are all responsible to fulfill our particular function, whatever that is. And then he makes that very clear. Verse 6, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. Now notice that right there. That's what I mean by responsibility. Each one is supposed to exercise it accordingly. You have something. You have some sort of gift. You have some sort of place in the body of Christ. Your calling is to exercise it. Uh, I mean, we got to start there. Willingness to serve. I love church membership meetings when people turn to the elders and say, um, whatever I can do, however I can serve, you know what I mean? I'm ready to serve. And, you know, it's like music to our ears, you know, praise the Lord, right? Um, because that's that really should be our heart. I mean, think about that. Um, it should kind of flow from our heart uh, to want to just to serve and pour ourselves out, like Paul says, you know, um, to pour out our hearts on the altar of the faith of the church, et cetera, et cetera. So now he gets into actual gifts. He says um, in verse 6, Since we have gifts that differ that have been given to us, exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving. Now, that's interesting, right? Because it's like, it's kind of general, right? If service in his serving, Right, it's kind of like, well, isn't everything kind of service? <laughs> right, so I I take that to mean something like, you know, if a person is particularly gifted to serve, where they're always serving, and I've seen that in the church where people are just serving, 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 serving. And <laughs> Amy, <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that's right. Uh, Amy, you know, is one. Felix is another guy that you know in the church. I've known Felix for. Way too long. I don't know why why I've known Felix this long in my life, but (laughs) my mom's laughing because I've literally known Felix since I was eight years old. But anyway, we'll leave that alone. He knows too much about me. But anyway. Yeah, yeah. They see the need. Boom. They just do it. They walk in with those lenses, right? They're not on cruise control. Just, oh, whatever's going on, it's going on. Just kind of keep to myself. No way. They walk in the church and like, coffee, I'm on it. Boom. Let's go. You know what I mean? They're just so gifted with that, you know? A lot of times that results in, you know, that's like deacon material. You know what I mean? Serving tables, just getting done whatever needs to get done. You know, I love that spirit. Um, 
We should all be like that. But some people, you would admit, are particularly gifted. That's what Paul's saying here. Some people have this particular gifting. If service, then in serving. If he who teaches, then in teaching. If you're gifted to teach, if you have the gift of teaching, don't keep it to yourself. A treat does not eat its own fruit, right? You have to dish it out. If you are gifted to teach and people affirm that, and people recognize that, then you should labor to continue to teach. People don't hold back. I've seen brothers that are gifted in their teaching uh, abilities, but they don't want to teach. They're reserved in that. They don't want to exercise that gift. They, maybe they're shy. So they let other things like personality traits overpower their gift. And let me tell you something, right? Your gift sometimes will make you uncomfortable. You may be particularly gifted in a certain area and it, it, it doesn't come easy because of everything involved in that gifting. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Ray Comfort knew that he was called to be an evangelist, but before he stepped one foot out of his door to become an evangelist, he went into a season of radical depression, months of darkness. He wouldn't even come out of his room and uh, he because he was totally petrified of public speaking and talking in front of people and it sent him into this rata he wrote a book on it somewhere if trish was in here she'd tell us but he he wrote a book on that because that's what happened to him um and and that happens sometimes when when you know god is calling uh, you to a, a certain area of ministry you may be hesitant to use your gifts uh for whatever reason god has a way doesn't he putting his thumb on us, <laughs> right, of just pushing us out there, right, getting us out of our comfort zone, right? Is that the name of the comfort zone? And that, he talks about it in there? Yeah, he's written about 50 books, uh, Ray Comfort, um, and he talks about a lot of the same stories in all the books, so that that is a gentle jab, you know, that's all it is. <laughs> That's right. He who exhorts, look at that. Um, verse 8. He who exhorts in exhortation. Can somebody please tell me what that's talking about? Hmm? Someone who encourages and, uh, How do you guys take that word when you see it? Anybody else have a different translation? Uh, does, what is the ESV or? KJV or NIV or exhort. Yeah. Everybody has the same version in here. Good. We're good. Making progress. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, parakaleo is the word that means to come alongside of someone. Right. Um, so that's what exhortation should really be like. Like some people are so gifted in exhortation. It doesn't mean rebuke. I think. What I'm getting at is that when we see the word exhort, I think what we think about is conf- somebody that's going to confront someone, right? Like, I'm going to exhort you to do something, right? <laughs> right? But really, uh, parakaleo is that word that literally means to come alongside of a person, right? Not to talk down your nose, but to come next to you and link arms with you, so to speak, and be an encouragement to you instead of being a, you know, sort of a, a judge over you, you know what I mean, type of thing. Yes, sir, Landon? Um, the same, um, parkalete, mm-hmm. the same word used in Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 3, uh-huh. 13. Um, and it says, 
starting in verse 12, take care, brethren, lest there should be in any, any, any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart and a falling away from the living God, but exhort one another. Your Bible will probably render that encourage. Like yeah. The NASB renders that encourage. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's the same word for exhort there. But encourage one another or exhort one another day after day as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, one is a verb, right? Parakalon is a verb from parakaleo, and then paraklesis is the adjective or the, the noun form of that word. And it just means, you know, one who encourages is to do encouragement. You know what I mean? But notice that. I mean, my Greek translation says that, encouragement. And so when somebody has that gift, then they should not fail to encourage. You know what I mean? Have you ever had the Lord and the Spirit prompt your heart to encourage a brother or a sister, but you didn't do it? Right? Uh, I think we need to listen to that sometimes when we see like a need. Don't be afraid to say, what's the worst that can happen? They get mad at you? I mean, who cares? Well, you know what I mean. Like, let them get mad. I mean, you're trying to encourage. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, Christians can be real stubborn. We don't want encouragement. Mm-hmm. You know? Why are we like that? <laughs> Good. I, I knew you'd have the answer. I'm almost thinking out loud, but thank you, Jonathan. You had a question, comment? Exactly. Yeah, what was his name? What was his nickname, right? Son of Encouragement, you know? And uh, it's like early on it's, it's Barnabas and Paul, and then as, the, as it grows, it becomes Paul and Barnabas. Yeah, he took the back seat. He took the back seat, and he's still encouraging them, and then he, he moves on to encouraging John Mark in, in other, That's right. other areas. Really That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it could be, you can make a case almost that John, uh, that Barnabas had much, a, a much stronger gift of encouragement than Paul, right? Paul was like, no, he failed to go with us to the work, therefore forget John Mark, we gotta go. You know what I mean? Like, Paul was more like a go, 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 go. You know, whereas, you know, Barnabas was like, no, I think we should be patient with this guy. Let's, let's wait on the Lord. Let's see what the Lord will do. And then we know that Barnabas, his fruit, his labor paid off, right? Because at the end of Paul's life, he says, bring John Mark. He's useful to me for ministry. So something happened, like Barnabas discipled him and brought him along. You know what I mean? And that's beautiful. What a what a beautiful picture of this gift right here, you know? And, um, and that's what the Trellis and the Vine book is all about, too, is just, just don't give up on the person, you know what I mean? And be more preoccupied with building that person rather than, plopping them into a position and shoving them in a ministry. You know what I mean? Uh, I like that. But uh, also notice uh, the emphasis here on sincerity. I love this because this is like a gut check, right? Let love be without hypocrisy. Wow. You know, love you, brother. Hey, pray for you, right? Hey, we'll get together. But then we don't do it. You know what I mean? Let love be without hypocrisy. Don't tell somebody I'm going to pray for you and you don't pray for them. You know, I can't tell you guys, this is kind of a, this is kind of a pet peeve for me, but here recently I, I had just had this righteous indignation that I was doing that too much and that my word just wasn't meaning anything when I said, Hey, we'll do lunch. We'll go for coffee or something. And we don't do it. And I started just, I don't want to do that anymore. (laughs) 
So I got a reputation in the church for not agreeing to do anything. <laughs> I, I kid you not. I think Robert knows me a little bit like that too. Hey, can we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you want to do this or that? You know, what do you think about meeting with this person? You want to preach here? Go there? Uh, I'll think about it. It's not a real glorious answer, but it's better than, yeah, sure, and then I don't do it. You know what I mean? Um, what what other aspects are affected by this? Let love be without hypocrisy. What other aspects could we say are affected in the service of the church with that right there? I mean, this is a big one. This is a big one. This is our heart. You know what I mean? No one sees this. You know, this is in your heart. I mean, you could be serving in a million different ways in the church and be completely hypocritical in the process. So how does this affect, what else is affected with this? No right or wrong answer here. Yes, sir? Oh, wow. Wow, there you go. Wow, look at that. Wow. It's a great example. crazy you guys you know what's remarkable about that is you know i just came from a conference with you know five thousand pastors or whatever and it never ceases to amaze me we still need biblical churches like we need biblical churches you know what i mean that's a need everywhere you know and i mean I get asked all the time, do you know of a good church in our area? Over here, somebody contacted me from all over the nation. You know, I'm looking for a good church. Do you know of it? And I look around, and I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'll do the work for you. So I get on Nine Marks, and then I get on Masters, and I get on different church finders, founders. You know, I, I'm, I'm looking for, and there's nothing. There's nothing. There's 60 miles away. And it's just like, move. <laughs> move. You know, you got to move, I guess. And then you're like, Feeling bad because, like, but what about the people? There's no church for the people. I'm telling you, man, there's there's a greatest need uh, even today. Isn't that amazing? Like, with all of our technological advancements, with all of our population growth, with how many churches on every corner, you know. Watch out, guys. I might shoot out of here like a rocket and go somewhere. <laughs> I, won't, I won't do that. I won't do that. Well, let's pray and we'll we'll close. Father... Lord, who is sufficient for all of these things, Lord? And I'm grateful that I'm surrounded by uh, a church that is definitely not uh, arrived in on these issues, but who are striving. And I'm thankful that I'm surrounded by believers that want to conform to the standard of worship that you've given us in your word. And help us, Lord, give us humility, even as Paul has talked about here not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Help us, Lord, to do the little things 
Lord, and to be practically involved in people's life, to reach out, to be welcoming, to be warm and loving, and to be sincere. We ask that you would help us to do this in Jesus' name. Amen.